It's a myth that once you've found confidence, you'll keep it forever. The bad news is that we'll never stop working on our confidence. The good news is that there are key tactics that will help most of us do better. On this episode, what to do in order to protect your confidence. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 573. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A conversation about confidence is a one that comes up in many of the situations that I deal with with leaders and in questions that I receive. And I bet it's something you think about a lot too in your work. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about the importance of confidence and how we can protect it. I'm so glad to be able to welcome an expert. Nate Zinzer is an expert in the psychology of human performance. He's been at the forefront of applied sports psychology for over 30 years. Nate has published scholarly research and is on the fifth edition of his widely used textbook, Applied Sports Psychology, Personal Growth to Peak Performance. He helped launch the highly successful magazine Sports Illustrated for Kids by contributing a monthly advice column for five years and was presented with an American Library Association Award for his children's book, Dear Dr. Psych, A Kid's Guide to Handling Sports Problems. Nate has been a regular consultant to the Philadelphia Flyers and the New York Giants, as well as a consultant for the FBI Academy, the U.S. Army World Class Athlete Program, the U.S. Army Recruiting Command, and the U.S. Army Markmanship Unit. Since 1992, he has directed a cutting-edge applied sports psychology program at the United States Military Academy's Center for Enhanced Performance, personally conducting over 17,000 individual training sessions and 700 team training sessions for cadets seeking the mental edge for athletic academic, and military performance. The program has been adopted by the U.S. Army for training new recruits, drill sergeants, and tactical units preparing for deployment. Nate's most recent book is titled The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide for Unshakable Performance. Nate, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, thanks so much for the invite. I'm delighted to be here. There are so many misconceptions that we have about confidence. And as I read through the book, I thought, oh gosh, you know, there's the misconceptions I have. And one of the misconceptions is this, uh, like so many things in life, we tend to think about things in the binary when they aren't necessarily binary. And one of them is a misconception that once you become confident, you'll stay that way forever. And it's really not true, is it? No, it's not true at all, unfortunately. It would be great if there was some wonderful understanding that we could suddenly come to and all our insecurities, doubts, fears, and worries would disappear. That only happens in certain movies. And so we should not take that as a model for our lives. The The truth of the matter is that confidence is a very fragile thing. It's a very important thing, but it's a very fragile thing. So you have to keep working on it. You have to keep building it. You have to keep protecting it because we live in a very imperfect physical universe and lots of things are going to go wrong. So we have to deal with that and not expect our confidence to remain sky high all throughout our lives or or our careers. 
you write that confidence has relatively little to do with what actually happens to you and pretty much everything to do with how you think about what happens to you. Tell me about that distinction. There are many people who have tremendous backlogs of success. Their resume is quite impressive. Yet in the privacy of their own minds, they will psychologically discount or psychologically undervalue that experience. What they end up doing is spending more of their mental and emotional life dwelling upon the relatively few mistakes, setbacks, disappointments that, we, that they've achieved, despite a preponderance of success. And as a result of where they are focusing their mental energy on those relatively few problems, they don't feel very good about themselves. On the other hand, and this is really interesting to observe, people who have indeed, they've a lot of setbacks, losses, difficulties, and relatively few successes, victories, they are able to focus their mind on those relatively few successes and victories, mentally and emotionally emphasize them, almost blow them out of proportion. And as a result, they feel really certain about themselves at the moment of truth. Huh. And that's a pretty useful skill to have. You know, you can have all the experience in the world, but if you devalue it internally, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good. A simple, simple example is the very, very successful high school student who comes to a place like Harvard, and now he or she is surrounded by a whole lot of other pretty smart individuals, and they begin to think that they're the dumbest of the smart kids, and they lose that sense of assuredness that characterized their high school experience. Same thing happens when a very successful high school athlete enters a university program, a college division one program. Now they're in a bigger pond, so to speak. And I have to continually tell them, you know, you didn't shrink. You're, 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 you're the same big fish that you were in your hometown or home state high school pond. Now you're in this bigger national pond. You have more room to grow, more resources at your disposal. So you better think constructively about your experience and let it build your confidence. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, it really brings me to wondering about one of the key invitations you make in the book. And in fact, I go beyond invitation and say, you're very directive about this, of the critical importance of us protecting our confidence. And it turns out there's some ways that really do help us to do that. And you call them safeguards in the book. And one of them is something you call the constructive attitude lockdown three steps to help us to protect our confidence. Tell me, first of all, what would be the situation that a person finds themselves in where they're needing to protect confidence? Any kind of setback that you can imagine, Dave. A salesperson who has just lost an account, an athlete who has underperformed in the early uh, innings or minutes of a competition, a surgeon who is working on a, is, is in the operating room, engaged in a procedure that he or she may have done dozens of times, and there's a sudden unexpected complication. Anytime these sorts of 
setbacks or difficulties arise, we have the option of going, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. What do I do now? Or we have an option of protecting our sense of certainty about our skills and moving forward. And so the safeguards that I offer up help one do that. There's an element of, when I think about this, I don't think you use this analogy in the book, but I thought about it as like a domino effect when I think about the fragility, like especially when something happens, like you describe early on in an interaction, a performance, a meeting, a procedure, whatever it is, there's the tendency for all of us to like all of a sudden start to catastrophize and that's going to affect everything else. When in reality, it doesn't need to be that way. We can actually interrupt that pretty effectively. Exactly. It does not need to be that way. We do not have to fall prey to the, oh, here I go again trap. This kind of idea that a mistake that I make is likely to repeat itself and cause further trouble in the moment, in the next moment, and into the future, especially if it's something that we may have struggled with or had an issue with in the past. But there's a safeguard to that, oh, here I go again, trap. And that safeguard is to look at the occurrence of the mistake, the loss of the account, the mistake early in the tennis match. You've gone, you, you know, you've lost the first set. The way you interpret that is to sort of keep it in its proper temporal perspective. Yes, it happened, but it just happened that time. It's that one occurrence. You don't think of it as, the, the harbinger or the predecessor of yet more and more and more occurrences of the same thing. You keep it in the past where it belongs. You have to be able to tell yourself, yeah, it happened. And it was just that one time. It was just that one occurrence. Even if there are consequences to said mistake or setback, you have to keep it in that proper temporal, temporary perspective, or else you just ask for trouble. Yeah, and that's the distinction I hear. It's it's this is temporary versus it's me and I'm internalizing this as a commentary on my entire <laughs> my entire being. And the, I I wrote down that phrase that you just said several times when I was reading the book, just that one time. Like yes. us getting like com comfortable saying that and and saying that to ourselves internally. It sounds like that's a key part of this. That's a very important part of it. And you just touched on a further aspect of this whole process. Yes, the mistake happened. You have to keep it in its proper temporary perspective. You also have to keep it limited in terms of where it occurred. It happened in one particular situation or setting. You have to keep it in that setting. You have to keep it in that situation or else you generalize it to occurring in other settings. And now it's not, oh, here I go again. Now it's, oh, my whole day or my whole campaign is now being polluted because you automatically generalize from something that happened in one situation to now occurring in other situations. It doesn't affect everything. And as you just pointed out, very importantly, keeping it in that one-time perspective in that one-place perspective, is it's also really important to keep it external to who you are as an individual. Uh. You, you don't have the luxury, really, of saying, because of this, because of this, I am, generalizing across the board, 
I am maybe not suited for this job, maybe not suited for this process. It's very important to look at those mistakes as non-representative of who you are and what you can do. But we are very good, as you pointed out, kind of catastrophizing it, making a bigger deal about it, allowing certain mistakes, selected happenings in our lives to become a kind of commentary on who we are in general. And that is a disservice that we do to ourselves. And as leaders, it's a disservice that we do to our team. What's a example of the internal dialogue that makes that shift a bit? Of that, that sounds more like a limited, this doesn't affect everything else, that you would encourage someone to consider versus what we typically do. I had an interesting conversation just this morning with a member of one of our athletic teams who was under the impression that if Friday afternoon's practice wasn't quite spot on, then the Saturday competition was going to be off. And it was right along these same lines. Okay, if something happened on Friday, we leave it there in that day, in that moment. And we say to ourselves, well, I don't have to have a great practice on Friday in order to feel good on Saturday. What does Friday have to do with Saturday? I'm going to get sleep. I'm going to rest up. Let's see what I can do on Saturday. Hmm. Rather than, uh-oh, I didn't practice great on Friday. I don't think I'm going to do well. You got to be able to leave things where they are rather than drag them forward into the present and into your future. One of the examples that I loved in the book is an example with one of the lacrosse coaches at West Point who did this really interesting thing with a ball <laughs> in one of the practices. And and the, and I think it really highlights the point of like when something's not working, it can be non-representative versus pervasive. Tell me about that coaching moment that he tried. That is one of my favorite stories. It's one of my favorite experiences working at West Point. I know that coach very well. I've known him for years and years. And he did something beautiful one afternoon when the team was underperforming on a full field passing drill. And that's a drill where you've got five or six people in motion, three or four balls moving up and down the field. And coach Joe Alberisi didn't like what he was seeing. So he blew the whistle, stopped the drill, but he didn't criticize players as such. He just stepped up to the middle of the field, shouted for everyone to hear, hey, we're better than this. I don't know what's going on, but, but this isn't us. And I think that's an important statement. This isn't us. This bad moment that we're experiencing is not reflective, representative of who we are. He externalized it, pushing it away from the team's collective confidence. And then he did something really wonderful. He walked over to one of the balls that was on the ground, picked it up, held it up high and said, it's got to be this ball. <laughs> so he then, so he grabs a, grabs a lacrosse stick from one of, the, one of the nearest player, puts the offending ball in the stick and throws it high up into the stadium stands. And then he says, okay, now let's get it right. And the drill resumed and the guys were better. And, you know, of course it wasn't the ball's fault, but coach Alberici was pretty smart. 
he wasn't crazy to suggest that it maybe was the ball's fault by declaring it's got to be the ball. He took some pressure off his players, reinforced the fact that, hey, yeah, I think you guys are good, which is kind of important for any leader to do. And rather than say anything that might get him thinking, oh, boy, we're stinking, you know, we're not good today. We're, you know, we're not playing well and get them to sort of encourage more negativity. The coach protected their confidence with both his words and his actions. That's the kind of thing that's possible for all of us. We can we can deflect this stuff rationally and constructively, rationally and constructively. I can't emphasize that enough. We can't totally ignore what is going wrong in our work and in our world, but we have to respond to it in a way that gives us a chance to move forward and be better and better and better as the time goes by. There's such an important call for us to win the battle with our own negative thinking and how easy it is for us to go down that path of negative thinking. Um, One of the sections of the book I highlighted, you write, it often seems that if I had a dollar for every time a client asked me, Doc, how do I stop all my negative thoughts? I could happily retire on my own Caribbean island. No single question has been put to me more often, and no single question gets asked with more passion and more urgency. Boy, we do all struggle with this so much. And it turns out on this too, our own negative thinking, there's some things we can do to interrupt that and to do better, isn't it? Absolutely. The conversation that goes on in our own minds with a voice of negativity and a voice of optimism and possibility, that's just like an argument that you might have with a sibling. I want to do this. No, I want to do that. It goes back and forth and goes back and forth and goes back and forth. But you got to be in control of that argument. The way you win the argument with your obnoxious sibling is to get the last word in. (laughs) The way you win the argument with yourself against your own fear, doubt, worry, et cetera, et cetera, is to get the last word in, Uh... to recognize your negativity, to stop your negativity, either with the, you know, saying the word stop out loud or envisioning a stop sign or some flashing red lights or anything that might indicate the end of something, and then deliberately replace that with the proper last word. The memory of a success, the memory of an improvement, the recognition of some quality about yourself. And in other chapters of the book, I give a whole lot of ideas about how you can build up those memories and those statements about yourself and those visions of the future. And if you have a bunch of those in your back pocket, because you've been diligent about looking for them, then you have plenty of ammunition with which to hit back to that little internal voice of, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble or "Uh oh, I better get this right. No, you can recognize that, stop it, replace it. Yeah. And those are the three steps you really outline that number one, acknowledge that it's happening. Number two, silence it or stop it and then replace it, putting in something more positive. What does that sound like? What's an example of how that might play out in in a person's mind? Okay. Again, just going back to a conversation I had this morning, it might sound like like this. Oh, I really need to shoot a certain score in this match. I really need to. Now, on the surface, that might not sound like a textbook negative thought, but there's an implication behind it. I need to shoot a certain score or else 
something bad is going to happen. So the idea is to recognize, acknowledge, oh, I've got this thought that's creating all kinds of pressure on me. I need to acknowledge that. I can't win a fight that I don't know I'm in. I'm in a fight right now. I have to acknowledge it. And then I say, okay, stop. I don't need to go there. This is unnecessary. This is BS. And I can deliberately insert the thought, it'll be great to shoot that well today. Hmm. It'll be great to score that well. That It's as simple as that, ladies and gentlemen. I will also say it is as difficult as that. Yeah. I'm not sugarcoating this process at all. This requires discipline. This is what mental discipline really is. Mental discipline is not dragging your butt out of bed at five o'clock in the morning to go work out. I can get my dog to do that. But I don't think, yeah, it's true. But I don't think I can get my dog to identify a self-defeating, ineffective thought process, cut it off at the knees, and replace it with something more constructive. That's mental discipline, ladies and gentlemen. I am guessing, just thinking about my own experience as a human being and talking to others and reading the book, that one of the biggest obstacles is people even hearing themselves doing that, the acknowledging part. When you're working with someone who is having that negative thinking happen and it's affecting them, what is it that is a starting point and a shift that they make that actually helps them to start to hear that happening in their brains? I have to diagram out the relationship between their various thoughts, whether they are spoken or unspoken, leading to a certain mood state, that mood state leading to a whole slew of physical changes, muscle tension, blood flow, hormone production, and then the connection of those physical changes to their actual execution, whether we're talking about execution on the tennis court or the wrestling mat, or we're talking about execution on the concert stage or in the operating room or in the boardroom where a negotiation is underway. Your performance is a function of the state your body's in. Your body is a function of the state that your emotions are in, and your emotions are a function of how you think. So establishing that connection. And then very importantly, once we have performed a certain way, we tend to think about that. So that connection between thought, emotion, physical state, performance can become cyclical. Mm. And you got to be careful about that. And so it's usually once I understand, once I communicate that and people really begin to think about it, the necessity of being darn careful about how you think becomes rather obvious. Yeah. And then we, and then we can work on optimizing that thought process so as to optimize the mood, so as to optimize the state of the body, so as to positively influence the execution that's important to us. Yeah, I'm thinking about when uh, you know a good financial planner or someone is helping you with money management starts working with a person. You know, often the first invitation they make if someone's not already doing it is you know track your spending. <laughs> where are you where are you spending right. money? Where are you get bringing money in? And right. then. Like once you do that, then you can then you have a starting point. And I'm I'm hearing a very similar thing here from you too. Is that the starting point is just start to like know where those connections are. Then once you know where the connections are, where the connections between what you're saying and what's showing up and the actions, then you can start to acknowledge it more, interrupt it a bit, go through the process you described. Absolutely, you can't control anything 
that you don't have awareness of. I think your analogy of the financial planner is, is absolutely correct. Unless you know where your money's going in and money's going out, you can't plan on anything unless you have awareness of your own thought process. What do you tend to remember? What do you tell yourself about yourself in the present? What things are you conjuring up in that wonderful video studio called your imagination? Unless you have some awareness of all of that, well, you can't control it. And if you don't control it, you're leaving your confidence up to chance. Some days you're going to have it. Some days you won't. Do you really want to leave it up to chance? Yeah. And you alluded to this a minute ago, but one of the the bad news things is that the belief that you're not going to have any negative self-talk. Like there, there's this, sort of this misconception that if you're truly confident, you're not going to have any negative self-talk. And it turns out like when you talk to the highest performers, you do this all the time. That's not true at all, is it? Oh, there's plenty of negative self-talk. It's just that they're very good at recognizing it, acknowledging it, stopping it and replacing it. They, they're human like the rest of us. They've just developed the skill that allows them to cut it off at the knees and get their mind back on the right track. The other bad news that I highlighted is you have to do this over and over and over again. You use whack-a-mole as an example in this. And I thought that was just a great analogy. Well, I think, I think that's true. Unfortunately, human beings to a certain degree are wired to be pessimistic. It's a survival mechanism. It does have some value, but you have to control it or else it will control you. So you are going to have to acknowledge your negativity, stop your negativity and replace your negativity with something more constructive. You're going to have to do that over and over and over again. And some people say, oh, geez, that sounds awful. I say, well, no, not really. You'll be surprised at how good you can get at it and how good you feel when you do it. Oh, and guess what, everybody? All your opponents and all your competitors are facing the same challenge. Yeah, They've got just as much of this negativity stuff as you do. So guess what? How about being 5% better at acknowledging it, stopping it, and replacing it than your competitors or opponents are? Doesn't that give you a little advantage in this competitive, difficult world that we're living in. And I usually get a few, hmm, I never thought about it that way, nods when I make this point. And that is the good news. You can be better at this than your competitors, than your opponents. And in so doing, you create an advantage for yourself. Yeah, I, I had that feeling of hope, like when I read this as well, too, of like the bad news is like, okay, we're all going to deal with negative self talk. We're going to have to do this over and over and over again. But like, if you make peace with that and just accept that and then start to work through the frameworks of like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge it, I'm going to silence it, I'm going to replace it with something better, as you start to develop a bit of a muscle for doing that, then you really separate yourself from what a lot of other people struggle with that becomes a lot more debilitating. Couldn't agree more, Dave. Absolutely. One of the other frameworks I loved in the book, I, I don't know if we can explain it quickly, but it's called the shooter's mentality. And I, I'm wondering if you could walk us through that, because I think it's like a really neat brain trick to like get yourself back in a helpful place. Sure. Think about, ladies and gentlemen, the tasks in your job, in your life, in your profession that you are called upon to do 
with a certain degree of regularity, okay? Now, if you're a basketball player, you are called upon to shoot, especially if your position is the point guard or the shooting guard. You know, you are called upon to shoot. You're, you're called upon to shoot many, many times in a game. So think about your equivalence in your professional and personal lives. What are you called upon to do over and over and over again? Now, the best shooters in basketball, lacrosse, hockey, any sport that involves placing an object into a goal, the best players in that have a wonderful tendency to interpret a missed shot as evidence that they're going to make the next one easier and easier and easier. Instead of thinking, oh, I just missed two in a row. I must be having an off night. The best shooters think, oh, I just missed two in a row. That means my odds of making the third one, the next one, are better. <laughs> now, that is a really interesting mental trick. You know, yeah. statistically and logically, it makes no sense at all. <laughs> There's there's mathematicians like banging their head on the on the dashboard right now, right? <laughs> All the sabermetric folks are going, no, 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 no. And I I can't argue with them. From a statistical point of view, they're right. But from the position of the human heart, the human mind, that funny, sticky inside stuff that makes us uniquely human, isn't it valuable to think if I miss two, it means my odds of making number three are better. If I miss three, I think my odds of making number four are increasing, increasing, increasing to the point where, and I tell the story, it's a true story in the book of a basketball player in an important game who had missed, I, I, uh, I think it was one for 14 shooting, and it came down to a clutch shot to win the game for his team. And he was completely excited, completely convinced that he was going to make that 15th shot having only made one out of his previous 14 because he had this crazy idea that every miss just brought him closer to a success rather than served as a testimony that he was off base. We can all cultivate that. And yeah. I would be careful about the circumstances in which you make those kinds of decisions, but you really think about the value of casting those misses and mistakes aside and assuming that each one is only bringing you closer to success. That is what all the great R&D scientists have, have done. I cite the example of Thomas Edison. There are bazillions of others who refuse to think, oh, this didn't work as, well, maybe it's not going to work. No, this didn't work. Oh, that means I know something that doesn't work. That means I'm getting closer to the proper solution. And I go forward with more energy more enthusiasm, not less. It's really a fascinating mental um, exercise. It's amazing how many people have used that. And it's also interesting the uh, like how they play the opposite too. Like when there they're hitting so many <laughs> in a row, <laughs> they don't assume they're going to do worse. Right. Yeah. If I'm hitting two, if I'm hitting three, four, five in a row, I never question myself and think, oh, geez, I'm going to have to sort of you know, revert back to my statistical norm here. No, 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 no. If I'm a hot streak, I think I'm going to stay on a hot streak and I'm going to make everything I look at. So it's that paradox of being able to see mistakes as productive to success and to see success as productive to 
more success. And, you know, some, the rational person among us will say, well, gosh, Mr. Basketball Shooter, gosh, Mr. Inventor, how can you think, how can you have it both ways? And those p- folks are just going to look at you, shake their heads a little bit and say, I don't know how I do it. That's just how I think. Yeah. And it turns out that's what the highest performers really do. It's fascinating. That is what the highest, the best shooters, the best risk takers tend to do. Huh. You've been doing this work for a long time. You've had incredible success behind you, uh, have worked with some of the top organizations around the world. As you put together this book, have been doing the research over the years, particularly the last couple of years as this most recent book came together, I'm curious, what have you changed your mind on? Well, I have really accepted the fact that the human tendency to be a little negative about oneself here and there is indeed built into us. I used to think that it was something that, you know, you pretty much could conquer once and for all. But the more I understand evolutionary biology, the more I actually get into the neuroanatomy of this, the more sense it makes to me that, you know, okay, negativity is with us. We just have to deal with it. Oh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we are also wired for optimism and possibility. I don't, I don't want anybody to leave this conversation on a pessimistic note, okay? We are wired for optimism. We're also wired for some pessimism, and we get to decide which of those two cycles, which of those two systems are in our own best interest at any given moment. That realization that we are a bit wired for the negativity also How's that helped you? I think it's helped me to be a little more forgiving to myself. I think it's helpful for me to communicate that so that people are more forgiving to themselves because we hear this, oh, you got to be positive. You got to be positive. You got to be positive. And if you're not positive, something's wrong with you. No, there's nothing wrong with you when you experience negativity. It's just whether you dwell on it whether you allow it to stick around, whether you generalize from it, or whether you isolate it, stop it, and replace it with something that's more constructive. It's helped in a lot of ways, Dave. Nate Zinzer is the author of The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide for Unshakable Performance. Nate, grateful to you for your work. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share some of it with you and your listeners. I hope everybody has a great 2022. We've had many conversations on the podcast over the years on building and maintaining confidence, not only for ourselves, but of course, for the people we lead. Three episodes in particular be helpful to you in the context of this conversation with Nate. One of them I'd recommend is episode 518, The Way to Make Sense to Others. Tom Henshaw was my guest on that episode, the host of the Look and Sound of Leadership podcast. Tom and I explored the framework for how to actually get your message across to others in a way that makes sense to them. It is one of those things that many of us struggle with, which is why I'm thinking about it in the context of this conversation. We may have a lot of confidence in our own knowledge and our beliefs and in what we want to get out into the world, and yet it doesn't always land. And when it doesn't, 
tends to shake our confidence. In episode 518, Tom walked through his process of sorting and labeling and how you can use that as a structure to get your message across to others. So many of you have messaged me since that episode aired on how useful that structure has been for you. Episode 518 for more on that. I'd also recommend episode 533, a great compliment to this conversation, Katie Milkman's work on how to build confidence. Katie and I looked at some of the research she and her colleagues have done in recent years around confidence, how to build it, and of course, how to maintain it as well. Episode 533 for that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 546, how to speak up with Constant Locke. On that episode, we talked about the challenge that many of us have throughout our careers on speaking up with confidence and doing that uh, in the professional space and the struggle that many of us have. Uh, Constant's book is really a great guide on building what in many organizations is referred to as executive presence. Uh, I've had many members and listeners over the years who have said to me, I really am looking for a way to build executive presence. I've heard about that inside my organization. I've gotten some feedback. What's a way to do that? Episode 546 and Constance's book is a great starting point for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you go over to coachingforleaders.com, there's an invitation for you to set up your free membership. And I'm inviting you to do that because as a free member, you'll have access to a ton more inside the website that will allow you to really find and track down what's going to be most meaningful for you. One of the benefits of free membership is access to my interview notes and highlights. When I'm preparing for an interview, as I prepared for this conversation with Nate, I often read the book, listen to other episodes of podcasts that that uh, expert has been on. I watch YouTube videos of their work. I go search out some of their articles and papers, and then I highlight some of the things that I found. And I include that in my interview notes and the questions I consider, also the things that I didn't ask in the interview, and then some of the most recent highlights, especially from their most recent books and materials. All of that's included as a PDF download on each episode. Nate's is in there as well, as are all of those downloads from recent years of all the interviews. It's just one of the many benefits of free membership. Those of you who are already free members, if you go in to the portal and find uh, interview and book notes on the menu, you'll see that. And if you haven't set up your free membership, you can get access to all of that right now. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com. Take a moment to set up your free membership membership. You'll have access to that and all the other benefits of free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Deepa Prashathaman back to the show. She is going to show us how to reduce the frictions that slow down our good intentions. Join me for that conversation with Deepa. Have a great week and I'll see you back on Monday.